You're listening to the Sermon Podcast of Damascus Road Church. In today's podcast, we'll begin with a word of prophecy by Mickey Reamer, introduced by Shannon Colwyn, with the sermon to follow. May God bless you. Um, a trajectory that we think God is calling us on as a church, where uh, we've been walking things out. I and a, and a group with me have been walking things out for about a year and a half and are so ready to fully jump into this and have the church kind of move in the same direction that starts with hearing from God and responding. Hearing from God personally, that I start to know God's voice and be able to identify God's voice personally and in community and then respond to that and just see what God does with that. And over the last few weeks, as we've looked at hearing and responding and we've looked at how Jesus made disciples with this a uh, really wonderful combination of both high invitation and relationship and high challenge of pushing people beyond where they think they can go. And then those three relationships that we started last week of the up with God and in with those closest with us and then out into the world. We're going to be looking at in today. Justin's going to be preaching about the in relationships that uh, Jesus calls us to. And a huge part of this series has been not just to like impart information to the church and say, here's a theory, let's see see what works. But as we've been walking out, this is what's been growing in us. This is what God has been doing. And so a couple weeks ago, Mickey and I had coffee. Now, I love Mickey's heart. If you know Mickey, you know that she's got a tender and a sensitive heart, but she's also full of courage. And she leaned across from me at the coffee table and she said, Shannon, I think God gave me a message for you that you need to hear. That was a good challenge. And when she said it, my soul resonated with it. And it, and it spoke to kind of what I shared last week about fear and about holding back and about diving in. And so um, immediately I felt like that is, I'm so glad that you said it. I'm so glad that you had the courage to share it with me and I'm going to receive it. And that was a word for me. She contacted me this last week and said, Shannon, I think God is grumbling with something. I think that word isn't just for you. I think that that's a word for the whole church. So now we're jumping into something a little bit different. This is what we would call a prophetic word. Okay. So in this series, we're talking about hearing God's voice personally and being able to respond. Okay? That's not necessarily a prophetic word because that's just internal. That's me. Uh, hearing from God and responding to him. If you start to think that you have a word for somebody else, that dips into something that's similar, but it's a little bit different. And we want to be about that here at Damascus Road, so that if you think that you have a word from God that the church needs to hear, we want uh, a combination of freedom and order, right? So that if you think you have a word from God for the church, what we want you to do is exactly what Mickey did is come to me, come to the elders and say, I think I'm hearing this. Do you resonate with that? Is God confirming that with you? And if he's doing that, then we wanna say, let's go for it. Let's speak this out over the church. And for those of you who need to hear this this morning, I hope you receive it. I really do think that what Mickey has to share is from God for us. So Mickey, I'm gonna invite you up right now Thank you for your courage. Thank you for your sensitivity to God's spirit. Um, the way that you follow him and the way that you listen and the way um, that you jump in and lead others to do the same. So, thanks for sharing. Thank you, Shannon. Okay, I just want to start off by um, just praying and asking the Holy Spirit that he will just do the work here and minister to all of your hearts. So, uh, Father God, we just love you so much. We are so grateful that you are our Father, that we are adopted as fully yours. Father God, I thank you that we have all been invited in I thank you that there are no stepchildren in your kingdom, but just co-heirs with Christ seated in heavenly places. Thank you, Jesus. So Holy Spirit, I just ask that you will do the work 
that you will go and just speak to your children here into their hearts and tell them what this looks for them individually, what this invitation is for them. Okay, so um, yeah, I was two weeks ago, three weeks ago, I, um, I was on my way to meet up with Shannon for coffee and just praying over Shannon and all of a sudden I got a picture from God and he showed me a big river. It was like three times the Mississippi. <laughs> it was um, a really big river and I saw Shannon standing there but as God told me later, it's not just meant for him, it's meant for all of his kids in the season that we are in. And his children, I'm just gonna multiply it. There are many of his children that are standing at the edge of the river with just their toes in and feeling the water and going in and just feeling the water, playing in the mud, feeling the mud beneath the toes. And then I saw Jesus in the river and Jesus was, it was big Jesus. And Jesus was saying, hey, come in, come into the river. But the river is big and the river, you know, when you look at it, it makes a bend and you can't really see what's, what's behind that bend. And the waters aren't very calm because it's a very powerful river. And Jesus said, come in. And then um, what I saw, or Jesus spoke to me and he explained there's treasure in the river. There's a big, big treasure in the river, but where the river is the deepest, that's where the treasure is. And the treasure is so weighty that the currents of the river um, will never be strong. Like they will not flush the treasure out to where the toes are, to the edge, because the river is, uh, the, the treasure is just so weighty. So if you want the treasure, if you want what God has for you, you have to jump in. You have to jump in where big Jesus is. And some of you will think, okay, but I can't swim for so long. Like this, this sounds exhausting. But here's the thing. Um, don't think logical. Like all reason will not, like all reason will tell you is, is to, um, to not jump in because it is not safe. It doesn't look safe. But here's the encouragement is that the river, if you're in the river with Jesus, you're gonna be safer than on the shore. The shore looks safe, but if you stay on the shore and if you don't jump in, there's a forest. And I saw it this week, there's a forest behind the river and there are things that are not good in the forest. And if you are standing on the river's edge, those things that are in the forest, you're easy prey. So you need to jump in where big Jesus is. Um, and then I just want to read this to you. Okay, these are Jesus' words. In the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believes in me, as the scripture has says, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. By this he spoke of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given, um, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. So Jesus has been glorified. And as I, like, I'm just really thinking, like we're talking about high invitation. There is high invitation on every single one of God's children. We are all called, you, you, like, he doesn't just give a little bit of the Holy Spirit to some and a bigger portion to others. No, if the Holy Spirit moves in, he moves in. All of him, God gives. Jesus died completely for you. He didn't just die a little bit for you and a little bit more for others. He died the same for all of us. And the same authority 
that is available to one is available to the others, but some are just standing with that authority on, like, on the edge of the river. So you think, I might get tired, I don't have the authority to swim, I don't have the strength. Well, you're still relying on your own strength. But if you rely on big Jesus, he will enable you to breathe underwater. Don't think, like, don't think in the natural. Think in the supernatural, what God can do. So I just ask Holy Spirit that you will show your children here what you have called them to do and that they, you will give them the courage to jump in, that you will show them what treasure to go after. And that you will help them not to look at what they cannot do, but to turn their eyes toward you and see what you can do through them because your strength is made perfect in our weakness. Thank you so much, Jesus. Thanks, Becky. So, we're going to take this next song as just a response song. And if this is something that, uh, in what Mickey is sharing that's coming from God to you, uh, take the time to receive it. Because we can, we can hear something and let it glance off, or just kind of bounce off. Or we can hear something and receive it and then respond to it. It's not, it, if it's specific to you, God will make that clear about what that is. And you may even walk out of here today wondering, what is that? I know there's something, but I want to keep looking for it. And that's my encouragement to you is just jump in. Even if you don't know exactly all of the details, let God continue to have freedom as you jump in with him. So I'm going to ask you to stand and I'm going to pray. And then we'll take this next song as response. If you need to respond just in your soul, if you need to go find someone to pray with to say, I know exactly what this is talking about and I need to take time right now, then you have the freedom to do that. If this next uh, time for you is to, <laughs> is to sit back down and defy what I just said of standing up, then do that. Respond as you feel God is um, leading you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your love. I thank you for your invitation and your challenge that you call us to you and that with you defying all rational thoughts sometimes with you is the safest place we can be i'd rather be with you in the middle of it and kind of standing along the side watching from a distance as you move would you continue would you continue to make that real in me and would you make that real in all of us? Father, thank you for your voice. Thank you that you continue to speak to us today. Help us to respond to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Follow me where we're looking at the life of Jesus and how he makes disciples. Uh, we believe that the vision of Damascus Road that God has given us is that we are a church called to be disciples of Jesus and to go and make disciples of Jesus. And one of the things that we want to do as a church is to be a church that not only lives as disciples and understands what that means, but also is equipped to go and make disciples. And so part of this series is we've been handing you guys different tools around discipleship, looking at how Jesus did discipleship and how we can follow in his footsteps and step into a discipling relationship with him and with one another and to be able to eventually take that out into the city and grow the kingdom of God. Because we believe that when we follow Jesus, when we hear and respond to him, that the kingdom of God breaks through and that healing comes into our lives, healing comes into the lives around us. And that's what we want for you, for your families, and for the city. And so that's what we're doing in this series. And so just a quick review, if you haven't been following us, um, the first week we talked about hearing from God. We talked about how God speaks to us and how we can just be going through life. And we drew this shape here. We talked about how we can just be going through life. And there's a moment that happens in life where God kind of like just gets our attention. We're like, whoa, what's, what's going on? And we stop in this moment, and we call that a kairos moment. We're like, God is trying to, to get our attention. And kairos is, is this place where it's just like, it just means moment. And so we talk about time and linear time, and we talk about time and moments. And kairos is a moment that God kind of gets our attention. And so in that, 
we stop and we observe, what is, what is God trying to say? What's, what's he trying to say? And then we reflect and we're like, why might he be saying that? And then we bring that into community and we're like, I think I might be hearing from God some things. And then and the beautiful thing about bringing it into community is that we can kind of sift through lies that we would generally believe otherwise. There's times where, where we believe, well, God might be saying this, and then I bring it into community, and the community's like, no, God would never say that. Like, that's not in line with the character of who God is. Like, you're believing false lies in your mind, and, and it can get corrected here, and you can find a lot of encouragement here. Now, what happens is, is a lot of times we just stop right here. And the, Jesus calls us to, to a place of repentance and a place of believing. And a lot of times we do a lot of repenting in our life, and we stop at the discussion, and we're like, great job, we're good, we're good to go. And the reality is we've done nothing to prevent the thing from whatever God's calling us to do from happening again or from going to do what he's calling us to do. And so what we need to do is create a plan in community, create some accountability around that plan, and go and act it out. And so we've been sharing stories about what this looks like in real life, um, and we'll continue to share stories. We've got some stories uh, to, today around what it is to hear from God and repent and believe, especially around this idea of community. And so that's what we talked about the first week. The second week, we drew this kind of chart of what was invitation and challenge, which invitation is actually this axis challenges over here and uh, how Jesus makes disciples. Um, Jesus invites his disciples into a very close relationship with him, high invitation. He, he tells them, come, follow me. And that was a big deal at that time for a rabbi to come up to somebody and say, come, follow me. It'd be like LeBron James coming up to you if you were playing basketball, or like some pickup game, and he's saying, hey, come follow me. I'm going to make you a basketball player. Like that's, that's the kind of invitation that Jesus is making to these guys. And so, and so there's high invitation, but then Jesus doesn't just stick with high invitation. Instead, he has high challenge, and he also tells his disciples, like, look, guys, if you're going to come follow after me, you're going to have to pick up your cross. You're going to have to pick up your cross. There's going to be suffering. It's going to be difficult. Everything that you think you know about this life, I'm going to show you a different way to go about it. And so it's incredibly high challenge. And so a place of high invitation, high challenge is where discipleship is. This is where Jesus hangs out. But a lot of us, we like to live in these other quadrants. We like to be cozy. We like the invitation of Jesus. We like the follow me. But like the pick up the cross stuff, like the come, come and learn from me, humble yourself, like that, we don't like that. And so we just hang out in this cozy area of just like, yes, I'll, yes, Jesus, yes, I'll, I'll take that, I'll receive that. Some of us, we live in the stressed area. We live in this area where like, we have a really hard time believing that Jesus loves us. We have a really hard time that Jesus is freely inviting us to come follow him. And what we believe is that we got to prove it. We just got to go all out and prove it. And this is just like a lot of stress. Like we're like, Jesus, I'm carrying my cross and I'm dragging it around the world. And it's difficult. And, and Jesus is calling us, hey, come, come live here. Come hear my invitation. And then some of us, we're just withdrawn. Where we're not hearing the invitation. We're not hearing the challenge. We're just kind of just chilling. We're just withdrawn. And so <laughs> that's what we talked about in the second week. And then last week, we started kind of a mini-series on relationships. We believe that when we look at the life of Jesus, Jesus operates in three distinct relationships. And last week, we looked at the up, how Jesus spends time with God. Today, we're going to look at in and to see how Jesus spends time with his disciples. And next week, we're going to look at how Jesus spends time out with the crowds. And so we're good. <laughs> I just want to go to Scripture and kind of review where we see this happening in Jesus' life, where these relationships take place. And so if we open to Luke chapter 6, we kind of see these three relationships happening in one small chunk of Scripture, and it's pretty powerful. And so this is what it says in Luke chapter 6. It should be on the screen. It says this, In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. So there he was up on the mountain. He was with God. That's kind of up relationship. If we look at the pattern of Jesus' life, he's constantly with the Father. He's constantly taking time. And we ask these questions like, how's the up relationship in your life going? And then what we see is he comes down and he calls twelve of them and he names them apostles. And he says, he names them Simon, who he named Peter, Andrew, his brother, James and John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, who is called the Zealot, Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became 
the traitor. And so that's the end. Those are the people that Jesus spends his ministry walking with. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. And then it says this, And then he came down with them and stood on a level place. And there with a great crowd, his disciples and a great multitude of people, all from Jerusalem and Judea and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came near to him to be healed with their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for the power came from him and healed them all. And that's that out. And so we see these three different relationships that Jesus enters into. And we believe that as a disciple, that we're called to live in these three relationships too. That we're called to live up with the Father. That we're called to live in community with one another. And we're called to go out to the city to where the crowds are. And to love on them and to do justice and to serve them. And there's this summary kind of verse around these three relationships found in the Old Testament. In the book of Micah. In Micah 6, 8, it says this. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? Basically, the question is, what, what, is, what does discipleship look like? What's God asking us to do? And this is what it says. It says to do justice. That's the out. To love kindness. That's the in. And then it says to walk humbly with your God. And that's, to, that's the up relationship to be with God. And so today, we're going to talk about this, this love kindness. And if you look in the translation, one of the ways that it can be translated is steadfast love. Just steadfast love. The love that you experience in a family. The love that you experience that like is going to be there for you no matter what. Kind of this unconditional, unrelenting love is what this verse means when it says love kindness. And this is the type of love that we're talking about when we talk about this in part of this triangle of living life together as disciples, as a family, as a community, as a church together. And so as we talk about family, as we talk about Damascus Road Church as one big family, I think we should look at Jesus and how Jesus understands family and how does Jesus do family. So that's what we hope to do this morning. Now to understand how Jesus did family, we have to understand something about how family was done in the ancient times, okay? Because when we think of family, we often think of this. You wanna throw up that first picture? We think of this, like we think of a nice home, isolated in suburbia. You got your mom and dad and your two kids, right? Your two and a half kids, like just cookie cutter. This is kind of what we think about the all-American family, right? I mean, it's kind of what comes to mind, this where we live in isolation, where I have my yard, I have my fortress, I have my things, I have my garage. And I mean, it's funny, it's funny. That's a funny picture, but this is kind of like what we think of. All right, now when Jesus talks about family, (laughs) they lived with their entire family. Like they lived with their grandparents, their aunts, their uncles, their cousins, their hired servants, their family friends. Like they lived together in a different type of way, in a different type of unit. And really the way that people live together in families around the world, like it doesn't look like this. Like this is... This is only to the privileged America where there's wealth. Like, this is a new way of living. This is not the way that we do life or that civilization has done life for a long time. Instead, we've normally done kind of the more ancient way of living together. And so do you want to pull up that picture? So the way that they would live together is they would create this thing called an oikos. And an oikos basically just means household. So you don't need to remember the fancy word oikos, but that's what it is in the Greek. But instead, just say household, just household. And when we think of household, we normally think of our immediate family. But instead, their household looked like everybody, everyone that was relative and any, everyone who, they, who was close enough relationally to be like, yeah, that's our brother, that's our cousin, that's our uncle. Maybe you've got some people in your lives that are like that. Like They're not related by blood, but they're closer than maybe some of your blood relatives. They're like, we are in this together. And what they would do is they would live together and so what they would do is they, they put their rooms together like this. So they would have a courtyard, and everyone's bedroom was like every, every kind of cubicle that you see is kind of like a bedroom. So every kind of couple or, or little nuclear family would have a little bedroom, but then they would share life in the courtyard, and there would be this gate at the entrance, and you didn't let anyone in that gate unless they were family or unless they were friends of family. And, they, and you lived in this kind of like cloistered community, but it was a huge community of friends relatives, and that was family. And that's where Jesus 
was brought into. That's where Jesus grew up, was with everybody, kind of in everyone's business. And there was kind of two purposes for living life this way. The first purpose was for provision. You had a family business, and if you just couldn't have enough kids, like, it takes a lot of people to run a business. And so the mortality rate at that time was, was very low, and so, like, you know, you, not all the kids that were born would make it, and it was just hard to make it on your own. And so what you need is you need this extended family to be able to spend life together, to be able to provide for one another. And so the fishermen, they would leave, they would go, and they would go fish for the day. And back at home, you'd have the women and the children, like, making new nets. You'd then have people cleaning the fish later. Maybe they're still cleaning and salting the fish from the day before. I mean, you would need an entire community network to be able to provide for yourself and then also be able to make an income. And so that's part one of why they did family this way. Part two was that for protection. There was not a police force at this time. I mean, you had the Roman army who just really didn't care about you. And so the only way that you knew that people had your back was is, is if it was your family. And the way that you handled disputes was clan by clan. And so if, if your brother or your cousin or your sister like did something to tick somebody else off in some other clan, like the clans would come together and you'd have to work that out. Maybe you'd have to pay some type of settlement. Maybe there would be some type of actual like violence and protection that would happen. Like you'd have to work that out between the two. Like that's just kind of the way it worked. And so these people came together for protection and for provision. And this is where Jesus grew up. Jesus grew up in the trade of carpentry. And a lot of times when we think of carpentry, we think of like woodworking. We think that Jesus is at his lathe covered in wood dust. Now, I don't know if you guys have been to the Middle East, but like there's not a lot of trees. There's not a lot of trees. And so Jesus probably and his family, what they probably were, were builders. This kind of word carpenter that we use is also meant to be builders. And so Jesus is probably more of a stone mason. They probably built kind of stone and limestone houses or different type of facilities made out of stone. And so you can imagine that Jesus' family, like, there's some strong dudes. There's some dudes that, like, is great for protection. And this is where Jesus grows up. Jesus grows up in this place. And then he goes out at age 30 to start his ministry. And his ministry starts with the baptism. And guess who baptizes Jesus? John the Baptist. Now who is John the Baptist to Jesus? It's his cousin. And so Jesus' ministry starts within his family and it's his cousin who baptizes him. From there, Jesus goes out into the wilderness and he's tempted for 40 days. After that, he comes back to his hometown, to his family, and he's kind of like, let's start this movement. Let's start this ministry. And what we find is that Jesus' family actually ends up rejecting him and kind of thinking that he's crazy. And so let's read this account of Jesus coming back to his family. So it says this in Luke chapter 4, right after the temptations. It says, and he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as it was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. So Jesus has done this day in and day out growing up. They're familiar with Jesus standing up to read in the synagogue. This is nothing new. This is the way he does. It says the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll, and he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord has come upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed upon him and began saying to them, today, and he began saying to them, today this scripture is being fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at his gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And then they said, is this not Joseph's son? And then he said to them, Doubtless you will quote me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. And then he goes on and he quotes this kind of proverb or this kind of parable about how his hometown is rejecting him because they were in they were good they're like good with Jesus talking they were good with Jesus and then they're like wait a second aren't you just Joseph's son you just made a pretty bold statement that like 
the kingdom of God is going to come breaking through through you. And Jesus is like, yup. And they're like, their hearts got hardened. And he tells this parable about how their hearts are going to be hardened more and about how he's going to be on the cross. And they're going to say, heal yourself. Come down if you're really the son of God. Later in the book of John, we read that even his brothers doubted that he was the Savior. It says in John 5, 7, even his brothers doubted that he was who he thought, who he said that he was. And so he tells this parable about how they're going to harden their heart. And then it says, when they heard this parable and they heard all these things, the synagogue was filled with wrath. And they rose up and they drove him out of the town and they brought him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went on his way. So the people of the synagogue reject him. They get angry. They go to throw him off the cliff. Now, who's at the synagogue with him? Most likely his oikos. Most likely his household is there with him. And what's the purpose of the household? It's for provision and protection. These guys are probably big dudes. They're stone masons. And what do we see not enter into the story? We don't see the oikos show up. We don't see the guy say, this is our brother, don't mess with him. Instead, we get this mysterious passage of where they rose up in anger. They're going to throw the homeboy off the cliff and be done with him because he's claiming to be God. And nobody comes to Jesus' rescue. And we get this mysterious passage of how he walks through the city, kind of unscathed. We have no idea how that happens, but he does. And what we also see is that Jesus comes back to his family. His brothers doubt who he is. His mother and father (laughs) invite him in, and Jesus is like, I don't know who my mother and brothers are. Like, my mother and brothers are my disciples here who listen to me. What we see is that there's kind of this break between Jesus' nuclear family and himself and who he says that he is. And so Jesus leaves from there, and he goes and he decides, you know what? I'm going to start my own family. I'm going to start a new family. And he starts calling his disciples to come follow him. And Jesus then, by inviting his disciples in, creates a brand new family that's about something that's completely different than the way that family was understood at this day. And so Jesus, he lives life with his disciples. He begins to live life with them. They don't have a place to rest their head. Some of the disciples, they come to him and they're like, can I follow you, Jesus? And Jesus is like, I don't know if you want to. He's like, the son of man, he's like, foxes have holes, birds have nests. The son of man has nowhere to lay his head. He's like, so if you're going to come for me, know that you're going to be an outcast. Know that you're going to be a wanderer. Know that we're going to go from place to place. And so the disciples follow him, and there's women that follow him, and there's disciples numbering up into the 70s, even into the hundreds that follow him. And the disciples, they begin to realize that they're a family, that they're kind of an extended family. They begin to understand that, you know what, what this is 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 a traveling oikos. Sure, we don't have the, the courtyard in our own individual rooms, but like we're in this together. We're sharing life together. We're sharing resources together. And what you realize is that the disciples, they begin to worry about provision and protection, You read the New Testament enough, you'd be amazed at how many times the disciples are worried that they're running out of bread. They're just like, I'm, they're like, did you hear that? I think Jesus is upset that we might be running out of bread. And Jesus is like, look, I just gave bread to the 5,000. Shortly after Jesus feeding the 5,000, the disciples are on a boat, they don't have any bread, and they're afraid that Jesus is upset at him when he's actually talking about his death and what's going to happen to him. We see Jesus and his disciples talk like his disciples think that it's about provision when they're in the garden and Jesus is about to be arrested and Peter pulls out his sword and he hacks the guy's ear off. Like that's what you do in a household. You protect. That was standard. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. That's not the type of family that I'm creating here. He's like, you're used to the family about provision and protection. And his whole ministry, and while he's with his disciples, he's trying to teach them this family is not about us. This family is not about preservation, and it's not about protection. This family that I'm trying to establish is about seeking and saving the lost. It's about getting out there, and it's about loving others. And he says, in the way that the world is going to know that you are my people is by the way that you love one another, that you would follow after me in the love that I have for you. In John chapter 13, he's with his disciples, and he tells them this. He says, a new commandment I give you, that you would love one another just as I have loved you. 
you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus is saying how we relate to one another, how we love and serve one another in this room matters. And it matters for us because we're going to be able to take care of each other. We're going to be able to serve each other. But also, it matters to the world. That what happens here is the spiritual family is something completely different than the, rest, than the way the rest of the world understands family. And that we're in it together. And he's like, look, by the way you love one another, by the way that I've loved you, the world is going to know. The world's going to know that I have loved you and that I... <laughs> I'm who you say that I am. If you go forward in John, just a couple more verses in chapter 15, verse 12, it says this. Again, he repeats it. He says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. It says, greater love has no, sorry, greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. No longer do I call you servants, for servants do not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. It's amazing. Jesus is with his disciples. He's doing life with them. I mean, he sees them at their best. He sees them at their worst. He sees them when it's ugly. And, like, and he's just saying, look, guys, I'm calling you friends. He uses intimate language. He uses intimate <laughs> relationship language with them to say, look, you're not just my servants. You're not just my disciples, but you're my friends. And you're my friends because I've, I've given you everything. Everything that I have, everything the Father has given me, I'm giving it to you. I've shared it with you. I've been transparent about it. And I'm also going to be incredibly vulnerable. So vulnerable, in fact, that I'm going to be nailed to a cross. I'm going to give up my life. And I think that that's what we see in intimate relationships and is, a, is a level of vulnerability and a level of transparency. Whenever we are in a relationship, we're like, man, that, that, there's just a closeness there. It's because people are vulnerable, like they open themselves up to possible loss. And it's because they also make themselves known. And Jesus wants to invite us into relationship with one another and a relationship with him where we are known and where we are loved. And I mean, I just want you guys to know, for me, one of my deepest desires in life is, is just being known and being loved. Being known and loved is like at the core of who I am. And there's so much of me that like doubts that if you guys really knew me, if you'd be able to love me. And I think that that's something that we all kind of struggle with and that we all struggle with in relationships to one another. It's like if you really knew if you really knew how deep and how dark the rabbit trail and the rabbit hole goes, like, would you still be able to love me? And the beautiful thing is we have a Savior who says, absolutely. Absolutely. And a lot of us, we can get behind that. We can get behind the God who lays down his life and, and does that. The harder question is we look to the left and we look to the right and we're like, can you do it? Can we do it together? And this is the thing that Jesus calls us to. He calls us to vulnerability and intimacy with one another and to share life with one another. The way that Jesus did life was that he shared it together with one another. I mean, day in, day out, waking, sleeping, snoring, they did it together. And the way that we're going to be able to do relationships and intimacy is that we've got to share life together. But there are some barriers. There's some barriers to this in that are really large. And there's some symptoms to these barriers. And, and the first one is, is just our schedule, right? Like we pack our schedule full. And we are just like, man, I don't know if I've got time to hang out with you. I don't know if I've got time to spend with you. And we're basically saying, I don't know if we can actually like, I don't know if it's actually worth it that we share life together, that we really can do this thing. And we just, we just get full and we get busy and we come up with a bunch of excuses as to not spend life together. The second barrier that gets into that way is like maybe our calendar's free, maybe we can create space, but the condition of our home and the expectations of our home gets in the way. And we're like, man, the home is just too messy. We can't have anyone over for dinner. Like, what if they saw what my house really looked like during the week? And then maybe we're like, well, actually, I just need to take the time to clean my house. And once I get my house clean, I've spent the time cleaning my house, and guess what? We don't have time for you to come over anymore. But you know what I do have time for? I get to take a nap, because <laughs> my house is not cozy. My house is really cozy. 
And so we have our schedule, we have our messy houses, we have our cozy houses, and we have these symptoms that I think that point to a greater barrier to our inability to be vulnerable with one another. It's not that our house is messy. It's not that our schedules are packed. It's that we have fear of being vulnerable. We are afraid of opening up to one another. And we don't want to lose control. We don't want to lose control. And that's what a schedule is. A schedule is control. A schedule is an excuse to say no. A schedule <laughs> is a barrier that says, look, I'm trying to be in control, but I don't want to give up control. A messy house says, well, I've already lost control, but I don't want you to see how not in control I am. And so we need to like, spend some time getting control of this thing so that you can come over and perceive that my is in control. And so we don't want to lose control, and we're afraid of it. We are terrified of losing control. And the way that this manifests, this barrier of fear and need to be in control, I think it manifests in kind of three different ways, all unhealthy ways, but all ways that I believe that we've all responded when it comes to being in a relationship and being vulnerable with one another. And the first one is withdrawing. The first one is that we just withdraw. That's kind of a barrier that we've got inside of ourselves is that for some reason, in some way, we have had the opportunity to be intimate and vulnerable with somebody and we got hurt. And we did not like the way that that felt. We did not like the, the losing control piece and we don't want to do that ever, ever, never again. And so we, would, we just withdraw. And so if you withdraw, generally you're a person that's kind of like a fortress. Like you're just not letting anybody in. You're just, you're just not. And you, you um, if you're this fortress, you just kind of go through the world coexisting. You're just kind of like, I'm going to coexist to the world, but I'm not going to actually do anything meaningful. I'm not going to actually step out and take risks, but like, I'm just going to go through life. I'm going to go to work. I'm going to come home. I'm going to enjoy home. I'm going to go to bed. I'm going to go to work. I'm going to go home. Some of the worst case of withdrawing is that we don't even get out of bed. Sometimes the worst case of withdrawing is that we don't even go to work. Now, some of us, we're withdrawn, and we go to work, and we go to work hard. Because what's going on in the withdrawn person is that they're afraid of being known, and they're afraid <laughs> of, of being loved. They don't believe that either one of those is possible because they've stepped out and they've done that before. But they think, you know what, if I just worked really hard, maybe someday somebody would notice my hard work, notice that I actually produce value in this world and acknowledge that. And maybe that would actually get me to a place of intimacy. Maybe that would get me to a place of being known, is that if I worked hard enough, then maybe I'd be able to make it. And I know that that doesn't seem like a withdrawn person, but the withdrawn person believes that they're not worth loving and that... And that the fear of being known is too great because they've once made themselves known and it went incredibly bad. And so they're just never doing that again. And so that's the withdrawn person. And the withdrawn person is very hard to love, very hard to know. Maybe you have some withdrawn people in your life and you're just like, man, it is hard to know and love those people. But they need it. So don't go away. Don't, don't stop chipping away at that fortress. And if you're a withdrawn person, like, there's been times in my life where I've withdrawn. If you're a withdrawn person, like, I just encourage you to step out, to step out in trust, to step out in vulnerability, and just see what response that you get. And I pray to God that God would meet you in that place, that you would experience love and grace and acceptance. So we've got the withdrawn person. The next person, or the next barrier, the way that we kind of handle this fear of being known and this fear of letting go of control is manipulation. So I don't know if you guys have ever met the person who um, came to you and they just started sharing everything in their life. They're just like, do, 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 do. Here is, here's, here's my whole story. Here's my whole mess. And it's because people believe that transparency equals vulnerability. And the reality is that there can be a lot of people that are really transparent and they're not actually being vulnerable. You can, be, you can share your stuff to the world and not actually engage in intimate connection where you're both known and loved. You can make yourself known. And a lot of people just go and they're like, here you go. Here's all of me. You can take it or leave it. 
And what they're doing is they're manipulating you. They're forcing you into this place where it's like, well, will you love me or will you accept me? And the thing is that the bet's already not in your favor because the person who's listing all the things, they already believe that they're not capable of being loved. And so any sign or any shape of you going into that relationship and trying to be like, yeah, I love you, I accept you, they're going to be like, yeah, but do you really? Now, that's an extreme example of manipulation. There's just a more subtle version of manipulation, too. And that's just where we try to maintain control of the relationship or of the consequence or of the, the conversation just through, like, the way we speak, body language, word choice, the way that we read the nonverbals of the other person. And I know this because I'm like, I'm like a master manipulator. Just a little confession to you guys. All right? Like, huh? Yeah, I know, I know, I know. And it may be master is way too strong of a word. But I'm just letting you guys know, when I go into a conversation, like, the question I'm asking is, how can I be in control of this conversation? How can I get the response? How can I get the feedback? How can I make sure that that person on the other side has a really good perception of me and who thinks that I'm awesome? Because that's what I'm looking for. The person that is the manipulator, they're insecure. They wonder, am I actually really lovable? And what I'm looking for is a way that I can trick you into response to where you say, yes, you are loved. And I'm like, oh, thank you. But at the end of the day, I know that I just tricked you into saying that. And so I'm not even sure if it's actually real. And I miss intimacy. I miss being fully known. And I miss being fully loved. So we've got withdrawn people. We've got manipulators. One of the other ways that we can... <laughs> avoid intimacy, being known and being loved, is just by being guarded, by being guarded. Where it's like, it's like, and a person that's guarded, they're willing to show you their scars. They're like, oh, look at my scars, look at my scars. And they're like, well, what's the story behind that scar? And they're like, uh-uh, no, you get to just look at the scar. You think of the story that maybe created that scar. You deal with it. You come to me when you're ready to tell me how I got that star. And then maybe we can enter into a place of trust and balance in relationship. The person that's guarded, they're like, I've got some stuff, and I really want you to know that stuff, but I'm afraid that if you knew the stuff, you'd probably go running away. I would probably be rejected because the scars are that deep, and I, the rejection has been so strong. There's a beautiful example of guardedness in the Bible and the way that Jesus addresses guardedness because the reality is that Jesus wants to enter into us, whether we're guarded, whether we're manipulators, whether we're withdrawn. And I think that if we think about it, there are situations in our lives where we've responded in all three ways. And Jesus wants to enter into those places. And there's this beautiful passage where Jesus enters into a guarded person's life um, and heals her and calls her into a place of intimacy and knowing and belonging. And so it's from the book of Mark, book of Matthew, chapter 9. It says this. Behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him, and that being Jesus, and touched him on the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. This is huge typical guarded behavior, but it's huge that she's going to touch Jesus and it's huge that she's guarded because what it is is that this woman, she understands who Jesus is. She understands that Jesus is a Jewish rabbi. She understands who she is. She's a woman that's bleeding, which meant that she was unclean, which meant that she was not actually allowed to be there because if she touched someone else, they were going to be unclean as well. And in the situation, there's so many people there crowding around Jesus that she's touching a whole bunch of other people, making them unclean as well. So it's not good for her to be outed as this person with, with this discharge of blood because that means that everyone else around her is just going to take a huge step back. And there's no way that Jesus, the Jewish rabbi, is actually going to ever touch her, and there's no way that she's going to be healed. And so she's incredibly guarded. She's got this deep wound, and she's been rejected before, and she knows that there's no hope of actually being accepted unless she comes in and kind of just sneaks in, and she's like, if I could just touch his cloak, maybe I'd be healed. And so she gets in, she gets close enough, and she touches Jesus' cloak, and this is what, how Jesus responds Jesus turns and he sees her. And he says, take heart, daughter. He uses intimate language. Take heart, daughter, for your faith has made you well. 
And instantly the woman was made well. Jesus does not allow her to stay in the place of her gardenness. Instead, he acknowledges her. He sees her. He calls her daughter. He's like, I know you and I love you and I want you to be known and loved and know that you don't have to live in this place of guardedness anymore. That you can be set free of this. And so he heals her of her physical ailment, but I also believe that he heals her from her spiritual ailment at that point of just guardedness of her heart. And I believe that that's what Jesus wants to do with us. Is that Jesus wants to meet us He doesn't want to just attack our symptoms of our schedule and our homes and our coziness, but he wants to actually heal the ways that this fear and this need for control are manifest in our lives. And so as I've been hearing and responding to God over over the last month, kind of my month, Kairos, has been, um, at least over a month, has been to, to give up outcomes, to go through life giving out outcomes, to just put myself out, to be faithfully present wherever God has put me, and just let the outcome be whatever it will be. Now, as a manipulator, that's terrifying, right? Because, like, I'm all about controlling the outcome, and I believe that I can control the outcome. I mean, I control the outcome through high school. I control the outcome through college. Like, I was a straight-A student. Like, I am good at getting stuff done. I am good at meeting expectations. I am all about saying, what's the desired outcome? I will make that happen. And for Jesus to come into my life and say, hey, you just need to let that go, like, I'm just like, okay. I need to let go of some of these outcomes. And so what I did the other day is that um, I felt God saying, hey, you need to invite people in. You need to invite people over to your home, and you need to take a risk and, and just be cool with whatever the outcome is. And I was like, all right. And so I just started texting people to come over for a, for a campfire. I'm like, let's just have a campfire. I texted about 12 guys. And uh, some of you guys are in this room. There are some people from DR, some people not from DR. And everyone replied back either saying that they couldn't make it or they didn't reply back at all. Now, in the, in, in nobody was able to show up. Now, <laughs> talk about giving up outcomes. You know, because normally in the past, I would sit there with my phone and I'd sit there with my text messages and I would punch out the text messages and be like, man, I hope there's a yes. And if there wasn't a yes, then I'd be like, well, how can we create a yes where there's a no? How can we like, how can we spin this? And instead, I just heard God say, send out the messages, be faithful to that and just go with the reply, go with whatever it is. And so I just want you guys to know whoever said no to in this room, because some of you guys are here, like, it's cool, we're good. And I just want you to know that in the past, in the past, what would happen is that I would go home incredibly, I mean, I'm already home, but I'd be incredibly insecure about how our relationship is. Be like, why did he say no? Was it because something that I did? Was it something that I said? Was it something going on? Especially if somebody didn't reply, because we had some guys that didn't reply. What, what are they thinking? Why aren't they replying? Am I not important enough to them? What do I need to do to be more important to them? That's what would happen. That's not what happened this time. Because God is calling me out and delivering me from giving up expectations. I mean, giving up outcomes. And I believe that he's calling me to do that so I can step into more and greater risks. So the, just last week, I had a buddy of mine who I'd been friends with um, throughout college. I was best man in his wedding. He lives here in Wisconsin, and I haven't been in contact with him for four years. And just all of a sudden, God just put this guy in my heart. I'm just like, God, what are you doing? Like, I don't know what's going on in this guy's life. And he's like, I just want you to reach out. So I reached out with a very passive text message, right? Because, I mean, all text messages are relatively passive. So I I reach out with a, hey, there was an event that we were both going to be at. I was like, hey, it'd be great to see you at that event. He texted me the day later. He's like, yeah, I won't be at that event. Sorry that I missed it. I was like, well, yeah, I was there, and you weren't there. Um, So I was like, well, I'd really like to see you. And I get nothing back. I get nothing back in reply to that. And I was like, all right, uh, well, is it just going to be another year? And God's like, no, I want, I want you to call him. I want you to call him, and I want you to make a plan to be with him. I'm like, oh, all right. So I call him, not in my stomach, because I don't know what this guy's thinking. I mean, four years of silence, and you start filling the silence with, like, the worst-case scenario, right? So I call him, no answer, leave a voicemail, send a text message. Two days later go by, still nothing. I, Rebecca knows, like, I'm trying to give up outcomes, but I'm a wreck. Because I'm just like, what does this guy think of me? Because <laughs> that's what really matters, right? 
we're just being honest, right? We're being in, we're being vulnerable, we're being transparent, all right? I call this guy this weekend, and I get an answer, and the dude is thrilled to hear from me. And I'm a mess, like, calling, like, as I'm, I'm like, God, am I supposed to call him? And I'm like, God, I believe you're in this. I'm like, I don't know if there's reconciliation that needs to happen. I don't know if there's confession or forgiveness. I don't know what's on the other end of this line. And he answers, and he's just like, dude, it is good to hear from you. It is good to hear from you. He's like, actually, he's like, I've been praying for Christian friends. He's like, I've been feeling really isolated these last couple years. He's like, it would be awesome to get together and, like, just have some Christian brotherhood time together. And I'm like, no way. No way. That's, that's what was on the other end of that line. But you just don't know. You just don't know unless you put yourself out there. And if I didn't call him, if I didn't, if I didn't respond to what God was calling me to do, who knows, if I, who knows how long the silence would have been? Who knows how long he would have gone without a Christian brother stepping in to be able to share life together with? And so maybe you're at a place where like, God's calling you to reach out to somebody that you haven't reached out to in a long time. I don't know. Maybe God's just asking you to step out of guardedness and to reveal yourself to some people, and to actually tell the story behind your scars. Maybe God's asking you to move from a place of withdrawal and step into a place where you can be known and loved. Maybe he's telling you, maybe you're a manipulator, and he's just saying, hey, stop that. Knock that off. Give up the outcomes and allow yourself to be present, allow yourself to be known, allow yourself to actually show up to your relationship and maybe lose control. Maybe he's saying, invite some people over to your messy house and be okay with it. And maybe you're going to be like me, dialing that phone call all week. I'm not okay with this. I'm not okay with this. I'm not okay with this. It's all right. Have them come over. Have them come over again. Have them come over again. God will change our hearts slowly to be able to move into a place of intimacy with one another. And we have an incredible gift. Just look around this room, guys. Just look around. See each other. We have an incredible gift of relationship with one another. And I know that a lot of these relationships, some of them are deep, but I feel like a lot of them are untapped. And we have an incredible potential here at Damascus Road. So part of this series is about information. A part of it's about sharing stories. I shared a little bit of my story this morning. But I want to invite Tracy Fountain to come on up and share a part of her story and about what God's doing with her and what God has done with her around community, especially here at Damascus Road. Thanks, Justin. I'm aware it's uh, about 10 to 12, so I'll try oh, to. Sorry. <laughs> like, oh. um, I'll try to um, make this this brief. But I've been been engaging in the idea for the last um, almost two years of um, following after Jesus and looking at what does it really look like to be a disciple. So when we're talking about the up relationship and the in relationship, um, they asked me to share, and um, I thought. When, when I'm thinking about what I want to see in this city, and I want you to raise your hand in a minute if, if this is something that maybe God has placed on your heart too, is I was reading in John, um, skipping around here, um, 1335, um, by this every, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And um, my vision for Damascus Road and Madison as a whole is to be people that look different by the way we love one another, that we are actually changing the city of Madison, which creates a ripple effect to change the world. So raise your hand if you'd want to be a part of something like that. Yeah, so see, look around. I mean, that, that's the vision that God, that God put um, in my heart, and I just want to share when I'm, when I'm thinking about in the last couple of months, what God has been speaking to me and how I've been responding. So that's the um, up relationship and what it has to do with community. Um, I just want to share a little bit of my past, and I promise I'm going to try to keep this short with time. But um, in 2006, I moved to Madison, and I moved to Madison knowing this many people. Zero. Anyone else moved to a city where you knew nobody? So you know how that feels. And so I was trying to find community. I also, at the time, did not know Jesus. So I was trying to find the community in a lot of ways um, that weren't necessarily healthy, a.k.a. online dating, just saying. <laughs> didn't go very well for me. Um, I didn't meet Kevin that way. But um, I grew up in a Catholic background where I didn't, I didn't really have community there either, but something before I even knew Jesus was drawing me back to checking out the church. 
and I was going from kind of Catholic church hopping to, to, to looking for something in community and a connection somewhere, and I, and I really didn't find it. However, I went to a business networking meeting, and that's where I met our friend Tony Tucci. And God used that experience. We had coffee, and he was telling me about this church called Damascus Road. And I, um, at the time, was fairly lonely. I didn't really know a lot of people, was looking for relationships, like I said, in the wrong places. And I checked out Damascus Road, and he invited me to this discipleship group at his house. And I was scared to death to go. I knew nobody. But I went. And we were in this room with these people I didn't know, and they were praying out loud. And it was my turn. And, and I grew up Catholic, and so I didn't know how to do things like that. I remember being really sweaty and uncomfortable. <laughs> but they just loved me through it. They loved me through it. And they invited me into a community um, that was beautiful. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to fast forward. And so when I think about the two greatest gifts that God has given me, is one, my faith, because we all know that our faith is a gift. And the second thing is the community that I that he gave me through Damascus Road. And it started with Tony. He used Tony. And it kind of blew up from there. Um, and I was um, in 2011. Um, Miss LaToya and I and two other friends that um, have moved away from Madison went to a conference, a prayer conference. And at that conference, we received a ton of healing. Um, we had some strongholds that a lot of us were dealing with fear and bitterness and rejection, just a bunch of stuff that was keeping us not able to move forward and walking in freedom. Anyone relate with that sometimes? Yeah. And we experienced freedom, and the four of us came back here pretty on fire for what we had experienced, and we started praying for other people inside the church. So we're talking about the inn, people that already believed in Jesus. And over the next couple of years, we saw, I don't know, hundreds of people being affected by what we received from God. And it was beautiful, but then I had babies, and so now I'm getting to what I've been hearing for, from God. And I went through a season, especially with Milo, he didn't sleep for like a year, and I was tired, really tired. Um, they say that lack of sleep is one of a ways of t torture. Have you heard that before? I don't know if any moms or anybody can relate. It's a form of torture if you can't sleep. So thanks to Megan over there, see, being in community, she helped us get Milo sleeping better. But even after I was sleeping, I noticed that I was still extremely tired. And I had lack of energy and lack of peace. And um, I was praying in my room one day, and I remember this um, um, distinctly as God told me two things. One, you need to repent to one of your close friends of some lies that you've been believing. And two, you need to get back and pray for people. And I'm like, fighting with him a little bit, I'm like, I'm tired. And you're asking me to go out and do things. And, um, but I was obedient, I decided. So I called up one of my friends that is in my in-community, and I heard a pastor a long time ask in one of his sermons, are you fully known? Are you fully known? And that's what Justin's alluding to today is that vulnerability piece of, of being fully known. And so that is another gift. I do feel fully known by some friends. And I called her up and I did some repenting and believing the good news. And I got some freedom for myself that day and was able since then to start praying for people. And by responding to what God is telling me in community, I feel like I got myself back again. And I've got my energy back, even though I still um, have got a lot going on. So I'm, the, the takeaways that I kind of want um, you to have is that we need each other. And God's command on us is to love one another in a way that looks different from the rest of the world so people have what we have. They see us, and they look at us, and they want what we have. That's what I want to say. They want what we have. Um, so I encourage you that, um, that being in community can be vulnerable. It can be hard. I've had some very vulnerable moments with the people that I hold close to me, but it's out of that vulnerability that God can break through some of those strongholds. So um, I just encourage you to um, think about, maybe reach out, maybe be bold um, in community and, 
and listen to the Father and respond to what he's saying. So thanks. Thanks, Tracy. All right, so we started this morning talking about family. And at Damascus Road West, um, when we do the passing of the peace, we talk about because of how Jesus has given himself up for us and how he reconciled us to him, that we've been reconciled also to one another and that we're a family. And so we greet each other as a family. And we have this incredible privilege to be in the spiritual family where we can be aunts, uncles, cousins, nieces, nephews to one another, sons and daughters, brothers and sisters together. And so the question I have for this morning is kind of like, are you in? And how is Jesus calling you in further into community and relationship with him and community and relationship with his people, with us around together in this room? And so um, last week, Shannon put up some questions around up, just about up relationships. Uh, This week, I want to put up some questions about our in relationships. And I want us to just kind of take some time, meditate on those. And if the worship team wants to come on up and just kind of uh, just begin to intro the song, um, and then we'll go into a place of response and communion and worship, and it just end communion where Jesus invites us in, and it's in communion where we get to go and participate together with the disciples to say that we're in this together with one another because of what Christ has done. Would you guys pray with me? Dear God, we thank you for today. We thank you for family, and we thank you for the way that you did family, that you did family to seek and save the lost, and for the sake of others, God. God, I pray that you would help us to be more vulnerable. God, that you would lead us into intimate relationships with one another and with you. In your name we pray. Amen.